This podcast is part of the Listen Frederick Podcast Network. To learn more, visit listenfrederick.com. Welcome to the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, where our gang of sci-fi fans will boldly go where few fans have gone before. Okay, not really, but we'll have fun discussing and interacting with our favorite shows and films from all over the sci-fi universe. We love Trek the most, but our love for Trek means we have a great appreciation for sci-fi in general. Join our panel of sci-fi fans from all over North America and beyond as we share our opinions and thoughts on this deep and incredibly diverse genre of storytelling. Our mission here at the Big Sci-Fi Podcast is to entertain and have fun, so you'll hear all types of views in a light and fun atmosphere. If you love sci-fi, this is the perfect space station for you to dock at. We invite you to come aboard and stay a while. You've got friends right here on the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Good day, podcasters and pod listeners. Today, we are recording this episode on May the 4th. Due to it sounding like the line from Star Wars, this has become the official Star Wars Day. And in its honor, you'd think our subject today would be Star Wars. Ding dong, you're wrong. Today, we are going to interview one of the most creative and coolest dudes in the Star Trek universe, Mr. Doug Drexler. Welcome, Doug. Doug Drexler. <laughs> oh. oh, for God's sake. I've had it with that guy. I am so <laughs> bored by him. He doesn't say anything I haven't heard already. <laughs> oh, see, I told you it's going to be entertaining, kids. Uh, but before we begin the interview with Doug, Let's uh, do what we always do, and let's do the introduction of the various podcasters. Hey, my name is Brian Donahue. I'm a pastor church planner here in Ohio and a musician, and I'm just excited to be here today to talk to Doug and my good friends. So good to good to see you, Mr. Doug and Adina. How are you doing? I'm great. This is Adina Mignona, engineer by day and author of the Robot Galaxy series by night. And now that book two is out, I can actually say series. <laughs> series is in, you know, really happening. And she will autograph them for you, Doug, if you'd like. Awesome. <laughs> Chris? And, and Chris. I'm, oh, I was going to say, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. I'm Christian Fox. I'm a mediator during the day resolving uh, disputes. And then by night, I'm podcasting on a Star Trek podcast called Yelling About Star Trek. And for the Star Wars fans out there, I want to say my favorite quote. Now this is pod racing. <laughs> and I apologize. <laughs> That's really. okay. We have to get that in today. And of course, I'm your host for the day, Steve Merkin, a retired member of the jewelry industry and currently uh, spending my time with these wonderful people, but also uh, volunteering at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And normally we would go into at this point where we would talk about what we've done over the last, since the last podcast recording was done. But what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, do a quick little eulogy here. The Star Trek community lost a really important person just recently, and that person was Harold Livingston. And Harold was the author of Star Trek The Motion Pictures script. And the thing about people is we only know them maybe for one thing but the eulogy here about him just 
there's like three paragraphs I have to read because it just tells you a little bit more about who this person was. And what it read in the LA Times was, as part of, as part of a small pack of American pilots, many freshly returned from World War II, Livingston's heroics helped Israel fend off its attackers and gave birth to the Israeli Air Force. As a young Jewish man, Livingston understood the irony that the war-torn German fighter jets that he was flying into Israel had been used by the Nazis. The Egyptians' pilots got the shock of their lives when they saw, first saw the messages took off from, upon meeting them, Livingston told the Times in 1994. And if you're wondering what he was referring to, he's referring to the Messerschmitt, Messerschmitt ME-262, a twin engine, twin jet engine fighter plane. Look it up on the internet. This thing is definitely out of science fiction and it terrorized B-17 pilots and their crews, much like the same B-17 that our good friend uh, Gene Roddenberry flew during World War II himself. He was in the Pacific Theater, so he never encountered them. But it just shows that, you know, we, we might think of him as the writer of the Star Trek script, but there's something even more spectacular about this person. And sadly, we have to sometimes wait until eulogies are written that we learn something more about them. And now I'm done talking. I'm done. Shut up, Steve. Let's get into the interview. So first and foremost, Doug, please tell our listening audience a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you came from, how you got to Hollywood, and how you seem to have found this two-letter word, two, this uh, eight-letter word called Star Trek. Are, are you talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. You're the only guy here, okay? So are we doing a taxi driver now? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> talking to me? Uh, I can't do it. <laughs> I'm going to make the attempt again next week. Are you talking you got, to me? You got to do are it. Are you talking to me? Are you oh, looking at me? I, I'm talking the only to one me? here. <laughs> you know, I started in the business with a makeup artist named Dick Smith, who did the makeup makeup on Taxi Driver. And uh, I remember when that movie came out, it was the bullet hits and the blood effects that really shook people up. Because back then, to show someone's like hand being shot off or shot in the forehead was, you know, now you could do all that so easily in the computer. But back then, if you wanted something like that, you literally had to have it happen on screen. And so Dick was a hero of mine and he, he lived in Larchmont, New York, and he did movies like The Exorcist and the old Salieri from Amadeus and Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman plays 110 year old. Oh my gosh, Jack wow. Crab. And he was my hero. Uh, and he's the reason I got into the business in the first place. I was living in, in New York City. I was in Brooklyn at the time. And I, you know, I was, I was working at an architectural supply in Manhattan called Charette. I don't think it exists anymore. And um, they had a Halloween party. And I knew if I was going to go to the Halloween party, I had to do something really unique. Uh, and of course, there was no internet yet. And um, all of everything, I had been collecting articles on special effects and you know any kind of effects uh, in fanzines and magazines like uh, uh Cinemagic, I think, was a fan magazine when oh, it yeah. mm -hmm. started. It, it became, a, you know, more of a mainstream magazine later on. But, you know, I remembered I had had an article about uh, how to make a Planet of the Apes makeup based on how John Chambers, who did the makeup, how he did it. 
And I dug that article up and I decided to give it a shot. And I did my first life casting at that point. And I just got totally blown away by how amazing it was to be able to create a copy of someone's face and then take that and use it to make a, mold, a, a cast that I could sculpt changes on someone's face and, 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 and run foam latex in it and actually create uh, another, you know, a creature of some mm. kind. Um, mm. <clears throat> I mean, uh, I, I did a Planet of the Apes makeup and it just, I, t I got so sucked into it. And I was making molds of everything. I was making molds of like the cat if it would stand still. And I, I just had the most, it was mind blowing when, when you do something that all of a sudden you've got an alien creature in, in front mm. of you, you know, it, it kind of takes your breath away. And uh, I started reading everything I could and I, and uh, I knew who Dick Smith was uh, and I had done this makeup. I went to visit a friend of mine who had collected stuff like Bob Burns, you know, or Forrest J. Ackerman a guy mm -hmm. named Doug Kelly and Doug Murray, <laughs> Doug Murray. I'm sorry. And I went out to his house and he had all kinds of fantastic voice. Fantastic. Sorry. Plan to the apes. You know, uh, he had costumes from the movie and he had the statue of Proteus, the lawgiver. And anyway, he looked at my stuff and he said, you know what? I'm going to give you Dick Smith's telephone number. I just did an interview with him. And it, it actually took me a couple of weeks to build up the courage to call him on the phone. And uh, which I did. And he kept me on the phone, giving me information and formulas and where to get stuff. And hmm. anyway, about six months later, he called me out of the blue. I was mixing a bucket of plaster, actually, mm -hmm. to make a mold. And the phone rang and it was Dick. And he invited me to come to work uh, on a movie called The Hunger, which oh, is yeah. a completely streamed mm -hmm. book. And it was a movie being done by Tony Scott who did the original Top Gun, right? Mm -hmm. And um, he needed help. And that's how I got started. And it's pretty much ever since then. Uh, it's, you know, you have... How, how long was it from that to where you got to doing the Dick Tracy makeup? How many years went by between uh, those? It was, about, it was probably about 11, 12 years. So you had a time during the period of time where you developed your skills as a makeup artist. Yeah, I mean, that I, point. I, I was lucky to get to be on a hunger with Dick Smith because first Dick is just look him up. I mean, his, his makeups are amazing. I mean, if you've ever seen The Exorcist, which he or The Godfather, you know, mm -hmm. Marlon Brando is the old, you know, Don Corleone. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Exorcist, the, the, the Linda Blair possession makeup, which ultimately that was one of the first moments where I became so amazed by makeup. I had, I had gone to see the exorcist when it first came out mm -hmm. and it, I'm scared. It was scary as hell. Right. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it, it was a phenomenon because the book came out and scared the whole country. And then mm -hmm. movie came out. And uh, so um, I saw the exorcist and then about five or six years later, I saw a movie that had Max von Sydow, who played the 86-year-old priest, Father Marin. Mm -hmm. And I saw a movie about six or seven years later where he, I see that Max von Sydow's in, except he's 40 years old. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is impossible. The, the, the beauty, I mean, look, you can do a possession makeup that looks ridiculous or looks really amazing, which is what right, Dick did. Right. But how many people can do, you know, a, you know an 86-year-old person <laughs> something we all know what it looks like you know you don't know what a possessed person looks like 
Father Marin was rubber from here to here to here to here. And it never even occurred to me. Wow. And that's what blew my mind. And that, that's the makeup in The Exorcist for me. And that's why one of the reasons Dick Smith became a big hero. Uh, so, you know, I ended up working with him on ex, uh, uh, The Hunger, which was, I guess, about six months. And um, uh, after that, he, well, I, I worked on another picture with him called Starman with Jeff yeah. Bridges, which was a John Jeff Carpenter Bridges. movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dick introduced me to a guy named John Caglione, who was a makeup artist. He never wanted to be anything else. And we hit it off and we were like brothers and we were partners for like at least 10 years. And we did Dick Tracy together. And um, Dick Tracy is what actually brought us out to Hollywood. I mean, we had a lab in Brooklyn and Dick Smith used to feed us jobs. We were all in the Northeast. And we knew we wanted to go to Hollywood, but we didn't want to just come out here looking for a job. We wanted to be asked on a picture first. And that was Dick Tracy, uh, basically Warren Beatty. You know, he had a lot of great makeup artists to choose from. I mean, it was a renaissance of a prosthetic character makeup at the time. Uh, And um, I don't know, Warren just liked us uh, above, you know, guys like Rick Baker or Rob Bottin or Greg Mm -hmm. Canham and who knows why. Maybe because we were hungrier than they were. Could be, you know. Maybe was your price better than theirs? I don't think he cares about money. Okay. He's Warren Beatty, man. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know. No, no. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have anything to do with money for him. It okay. wouldn't have anything to do with money. So you essentially got into the industry as effectively an apprentice. Is that? Oh, yeah. Way to say that. Is that yeah. still how it works today? So I, I really know nothing about, <laughs> I know nothing about this. Is that how it, it works today? Do, do folks um, who want to get in? That's the entry level. You know, you. You come in on it. Could it doesn't have to be make. Could be anything. Is there form? But is there like formal training that anyone no. has? No, it's it's a. Um, I was going to say the circus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's um, it, it's. There's no formal way to do it. Mm-hmm. There's no set way to do it. That's yeah. that's the amazing thing about it is that you have to be willing to invent ways yourself. You know. Mm. I imagine there's so many skills you need to learn. You know, there's so many artistry skills and then technical skills on how to manipulate different products and then uh, sure. computer skills, you know, well, adding yeah. to that today. I mean, the thing is that anybody, and it's true then, it's true now, can make a run at the business and possibly get in. You know, you got to put together a portfolio for yourself, pictures of your work or real of your visual effects or mm-hmm. although nowadays I got to warn anybody you really want to do visual effects. It's such a, when I was doing it, it was a small club, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, I was on Battlestar Galactica with the great Gary Hutzel, you know, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. CG in, in television was pretty, you know, unusual. Um, but what, what I've seen visual effects become is that it's, it's gone from being like small groups of people to being big companies, mm. you know, like Pixamoto mm. and uh, um, um, VFX and companies like that. And well, you know, it's just that yeah. they they've got it's like a it's like a, a Roman galleon where they have a bunch of people chained to benches, right. you know, and they have to row the boat. <laughs> you know, and the hours yeah. are horrible. There's no benefits. Mm. Yeah, you know. Mm. 
But and people want to do I, it. I, I, I met a guy one time who worked on one of the sci-fi films, and he said, if you look there, you can see those few, a couple of minutes, that's me. That's my work. And that's it. You know, he just wow. had to work on this one. Oh, well, he's lucky it. if you got a couple of minutes. Yeah. I mean, often a visual effect shot may only last a matter of seconds, you know? Mm -hmm. uh. Um, uh, it, and I totally get why that's exciting. You know, one of the great things about Battlestar Galactica was that it wasn't quite, you know, for instance, on Star Trek, it's like ship fly, fly by from left to right. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, on Battlestar Galactica, all the visual effects were driven by the script. You know, you would, mm. you, you might have an entire sequence that lasts four minutes or more on Battlestar Galactica that actually tells a story. It's not just like a ship flying by the camera, not to say that Star Trek didn't do lots and lots of interesting stuff aside from, Ship right. on a leg, you know, traveling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but you as know. a as an, a real life engineer, when I look at Star Trek, okay, I first of all, I love Star Trek. I love Battlestar Galactica. I love all of it. But when I look at it through the lens of how realistic is it, Battlestar Galactica, their ship scenes or and their their dynamics is much more realistic than than Star Trek could ever hope to be. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, on Star Trek, Galactica in some ways a little more grounded than Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Star Trek sometimes has a little dose of pixie dust. Yeah, hundred percent, and which is fine. You know, I mean, transporters are pixie dust. Mm -hmm. You know, um, with Galactica, you know, uh, you know, Gary wanted, the and the producers too didn't want the ships to fly too much like airplanes. Mm -hmm. They had reaction control thrusters. You know, you could see them firing when the ship was maneuvering. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I mean, it's all far fetched. <laughs> you know, really, <laughs> but. Uh, and, not to me. I mean, I love it all. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I even even now the Galactica stuff is pr is really impressive. I mean, we also did a TV. We did a movie called uh, Galactica: Blood and Chrome. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. There's not a single set in that thing. Uh, you know, after we after we finished BSG. They sold everything off or destroyed everything. And then a few years later, they came to us and said, we want to do a Galactica movie, mm -hmm. but we don't have any sets. Can you do it all on green screen? And we were like, yes, we've been working towards this since day mm -hmm. one. Wow. And so there isn't a single set in Blood and Chrome. It was all green screen. And mm -hmm. that was so far ahead of its time and still looks good. Although there are scenes in the very beginning we had a spectacular uh, hangar deck where you first meet young Adama when he comes on board the ship. And the director was so impressed by the first JJ movie, Star Trek, mm -hmm. that he wanted to have lens flares. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We're like, oh but my God. Complaints. Too many lens flares. What? I mean, what? well, they were ridiculous on, on, on uh, JJ's first yes. Star Trek feature. Mm -hmm. uh, and we said, dude, have you been looking at the internet? People are ripping the lens flares to shreds. Uh huh. And he yeah. just didn't just didn't hear us. Now I have to say that the lens flares on Goliath in the beginning because he forgot about it after that first sequence. He didn't do it again. Mm -hmm. He forgot that he liked lens flares. But in the hangar deck, I can buy it because if you've got a really large area, you're going to bring in giant auxiliary lights to light everything up like a football stadium. And okay, so there you're going to have you know, uh, lens flares and things like mm -hmm. that. I can buy that. 
you know, but when I look at it today, I'm like, oh, I have people on the internet saying that we lens flares because the visual effects don't look good. So we had to cover it with lens flares. And it's like, I have to like deal with that <laughs> with people. And I'm like, no, that is not the reason we did it. Because I mean, listen, when you go in the CIC, there's almost no lens flares because he forgot by then. Mm. You can see we didn't need them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The yeah. trouble is, is that a lot of people who are using visual effects, they don't follow it. They don't know what people are saying. They don't know what's hip or what's mm -hmm. ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there was no way we could talk them out of it. Uh, so, I mean, but, but anyway, Galactica was, uh, you know, amazing. We had such a good time and I was working with Gary and there were a lot of Star Trek people who came up sure. to work on that, mm -hmm. you know. And you won, you won two Emmys, right? For your work with Battlestar Galactica. Um, yeah, I think we were impressive. nominated like six times. <laughs> oh my <laughs> we goodness. Won twice. I, so, so can you tell us, because we're, um, we're, uh, we're, you know, we're, we are huge. We profess on this podcast that we are huge Star Trek fans. Mm -hmm. That's what we major in. We love right. the Star yeah. Wars. We love Battlestar Galactica, all the, all the other stuff. We're sci-fi fans. But how did, how did you get into Star Trek? Because that, that, is, that is something I think our listeners will be fascinated to hear, kind of that origin story of Star Trek for, for you, Doug. Well, I mean, you have to go back to like 1960, early 60s, mm. you know, yeah. 62, 63. I mean, there was very little on television. I mean, there's so much science fiction now. It's absurd. You know, back then, if you were seen in your school carrying a science fiction book, that was like grounds for mockery. Really? I, I, I used to be mocked for being the man from Mars. And stuff I'll like be that. darn. It was all for kids, you know. I mean, no, uh, no one in their right, you know, right mind read comic books and watch science fiction. I was wow. reading science fiction. So I was like far beyond a lot of the people who made fun of me, you know, right. mm -hmm. I knew that because they were making fun of me, I was onto something, you know, never, never let anybody make you feel like what you like isn't cool. If you like it, it's cool. Screw them. You know, right. mm -hmm. right. I, I was smart enough to know that at the time. And I didn't want to be a part of what they were doing anyway. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the birds laughing. But uh, so anyway, uh, so I was reading science fiction and I was also the early six, late fifties, even I was reading Marvel comics, which Stan Lee was revolutionizing at the time. Mm -hmm. DC comics were for the kiddies. Superman was for the kiddies. Batman was for the kiddies. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden Stan Lee came along with guys like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and Don Hack. And, you know, and they, they were, they were doing comic books that were unlike anything that we had seen before the characters had real personalities and they had issues mm -hmm. marvel was superheroes with issues mm -hmm. you know they had to worry about paying the rent stuff like that like <laughs> batman never had right. to, never heard about it you know and so uh and of course i lived i was a new yorker and um batman <laughs> batman was like from gotham city you know the uh, what the hell is Gotham, Gotham City? <laughs> Metropolis. Never heard of it. You yeah. know, but everything in the Marvel Universe took place around New York City. Yeah. So <clears throat> when I read the early Spider-Man, I saw that Steve Ditko was drawing the same architecture on the buildings as, uh, uh, you know, F uh, Flushing Meadows. Mm. You know, I mean, that's where he lived. He lived out in mm -hmm. Flushing Meadows, you know. And so it was a connection for me. I could say, oh, my God, there, there it is. There's the city, yeah. you know. Um, so I, I, I was a huge, huge fan of that. And, and at, there was a certain point where I moved back to Manhattan where I used to visit 
Marvel and actually be able to go up to Stan's office or I'd go to Mad Magazine and see Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein oh, and those guys. They let me in. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so it's a different time. In 1964, mm-hmm. New York City had one of the biggest World's Fairs that anyone's ever seen before. It was in 1964, 1965, New York World's Fair was in Flushing Meadow, Queens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was only 20 years after World War II. And um, most of the world had been flattened by the mm-hmm. war, except the United States. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. had, and people forget this, is that the U.S. had a big edge over the rest of the world because everyone else was recovering from World War II. Uh, and so industries like General Motors, General Electric, Bell Telephone, mm-hmm. Chrysler, you know, uh, they had money to burn. Uh, so you had all of these industrial companies doing these spectacular pavilions out in Flushing Meadow, which uh, the park there is where the, the fair was. And some of the buildings still exist. The Unisphere, the big globe that the flying saucer mm-hmm. crashes into in Men in Black. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, we we, we did an it. episode on Men in Black, and that's very close to Chris. Yes, so, we were trying to figure out what 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 happened with those movies. But, well, what do you mean? What happened? Well, we were trying without derailing the conversation. We were trying to figure out tangent. Our, tangent. Go ahead. We tangent okay. a lot. Yes, yeah, we, yeah, and I initiate a lot of the tangents. So, full confession. But I guess we were trying to figure out like why. Men in Black One was so strong, and why they couldn't recapture the magic for the later movies. Well, I mean, the, the thing is that you never know when you make a movie. No one sets yeah. out to make a bad movie, right? Exactly. You of know, course. sometimes the chemistry it has to be a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. You know, to be a big smash like that. I really, I love the third one. I I, I thought the Thank first you, and the Doug. third. Thank oh, you, Doug. I, oh, I love the That's third. That's good to hear, though. I am glad. What's his name as? Uh, the oh, Griffin, uh, Thanos, the Griffin, um, the Griffin. Oh. Well, the kid who could tell to see the time. He's the fantastic, but what's that's his the name? Griffin. I love not the Griffin. Thanos. Uh, what's he his was, name? Uh, uh, was, also, he was Cable in he, Deadpool Two. Yes, and, and, and he now. plays. How can I forget? Uh, I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know his partner. Uh, he was in Captain America as well. Uh, how can I even forget his name? Uh, but uh, he was the perfect. The, the, the perfect guy to play him. He did such a great job. And of course, he went on to be Thanos. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, well, Josh, Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. Yes. I thought you were talking about Michael Stuhlbarg. Michael no, but Stuhlbarg? Josh Brolin played. He played K. He Agent played K. A, yeah. A Agent K. Young K. Of, mm-hmm. Yes. You know. So oh, anyway, yeah, we went off on a tangent there because of the World's Fair. Yeah. So go back to the world. Sorry about that. World's My Fair, father everybody. had a TV repair store in Flushing Meadow. That was about two blocks from where the World's Fair was going to be. And I was a big science fiction geek, and there was almost nothing out there except for books. And um, this, the pavilions and the designs and the architecture mm-hmm. was just like, as a kid, it was like blowing my mind. And I had my, all my walls covered with pictures of the pavilion. And it was very future-oriented because we were in the middle of the beginning of the, you know, Project Mercury mm-hmm. and the race to the moon. And, you know, uh, so my father had a TV re- repair store a couple of blocks away and the fair was only there for two summers. Now, mm-hmm. if I told you, okay, I'm Walt Disney. Okay. I'm going to build a Disney world outside of 
I don't know, let's say Berlin. Okay. <laughs> it's only going to be there for two years at the end. And it's only going to be open during the summer. Mm. And at the end of two years, I'm tearing it down. The New York yeah. world's fair. That's what they did. It was there for two yeah. years and it was more epic than, than Disney world was, except they mm-hmm. didn't have all the parkland. It was, right. you know, um, so because I was so interested, my parents took me one year and I was so blown away by it as a kid. And I guess I was 11 that for two summers, my father used to drop me at the main gate at 10 in the morning and he'd pick me up about nine 30 at night. And <clears throat> I lived in the future for two years. It was mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 19, at the end, when the fair ran out after two years and I had to watch them tearing it down, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, they had these really fantastic street lights that as a kid I used to love. They were magical when they were light up at night. Mm. And after the fair came down, they had like a thousand of them stacked up in a parking lot before before they sold them off to somebody. And now I have one in my backyard. I managed to oh, get one. Really? Yeah. 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 Doug, Doug, Doug cool. has posted photos of that online. It's oh, I'll have to look it's, that up. It's it's so modernist design. It's, it's so mid-century really modern. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, Doug, I understand how you feel because I went to the 1980, excuse me, 1974 World Series. World Series, what am I just saying? <laughs> uh, World's Fair up in Spokane, Washington. And we spent like three days there because we drove up there. And that was like the future in one spot. It was truly amazing. Well, you know, all mean, the, yeah. The 64 Fair, I dare say, was probably one of the most spectacular of all time. Yeah. After 64, they kind of got lost because mm-hmm. now we had television. Yeah. And, you know, in 64, TV was still in its infancy, you know. So the fair was shut down. I mm-hmm. was heartbroken. Yeah. It was 65 or something like that. A year later, Star Trek premiered on wow. NBC. That was my consolation prize. Did you watch the premiere? Did you watch it on opening night? Did you watch it on the on, on the September the 8th? I... I I started watching it the first year, but the first few episodes I couldn't see because my parents weren't letting me watch television. I was only oh, wow. I wasn't allowed to watch TV during the week because of school. I had oh, to do my wow. But I could see the advertising, the print ads, you mm-hmm. know, uh, James Bama's art in the newspapers. Oh, fantastic. And, you know, you know, the beauty then also was that they seemed to have it more together as far as selling their shows. First mm-hmm. of all, there were only three networks. So chances are when you went to work or school the next day, your friends watched the same thing that you did. It isn't like <laughs> six billion things now. Oh, well, that's nice. There's no, yeah. there, there's no, um, you know, uh, group experience anymore where you all yeah. watch the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, we did that in elementary school. We, we'd either talk about, did you watch Lost in Space? Did you watch Batman? Did you watch uh, the monkeys yesterday? You know, whatever. When we would talk about whatever we saw that night before. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I was a big science fiction fan and I was hearing about it from my friends. And then uh, uh, one night my mom used to take a shower. Most people like to take a shower in the mornings. She liked to take <laughs> one in the evening. I have no idea why. So I, I, uh, she was in the shower and I snuck downstairs and turned on the TV to see Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And um i i went on strike after that i was wow. for one hour of television a week and i it was like you know i'm gonna hold my breath till i turn blue i mm-hmm. you know i uh so i finally 
earned the right for one hour a week. And I watched Fantastic. the entire first season in black and white. I didn't even see it in wow. color. Me wow. too. Oh, I had to amazing. do because my parents were too cheap to buy a color TV. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. when the show was on the air, maybe a third of the country had color television. Mm -hmm. You know, it was most people had black and white television sets. Yep. And I didn't see my first color Star Trek until season two. I went to a friend's house and the first episode of season two was a mock time, which mm -hmm. is one of the most colorful episodes because you're on Vulcan with the big fiery room. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I remember my parents finally bought a color TV to try to keep me home, <laughs> you know, uh, because once you've seen Star Trek in color, the other thing that I recommend is an interesting experiment is today when they shoot a television show, it's shot for color. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got color. Back then, the director of photography had to shoot the show so that it looked good in color, but had to make sure it looked good in black and white oh. as well. So mm -hmm. take an episode of, say, Enterprise and turn the color off and take an episode of the original series and turn the color off and see which mm -hmm. one still pops. Wow. Mm -hmm. The series does. Yeah, because the lighting had to be done for a black and white. That type yeah, of I mean, it was all designed to, you know, stand out and, and mm -hmm. have, you know, positive and negative space and stuff in black and white. You know, so it's an interesting, interesting thing to watch yeah. uh, original series in black and white. See what it mm -hmm. looks like. Compare it yeah. to something contemporary, which most contemporary shows, if you turn off the color, it just looks like mud, huh. you know. But if you watch the original series or any other show that was done back then. It's like looking at someone who knows how to do black and white photography and how dramatic black and white mm -hmm. can look. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I remember yeah. when I was when I was a kid in the late late 70s, early 80s, we still had we had two TVs. One was black and white and one was color. The color was like the newer one. And but mm -hmm. my parents still kept the black and white one around. So I still remember watching stuff, you know, in in black and white. My my kid. father, Adina, um watched Star Trek the motion picture for the first time in black and white on a TV, he says, was about 12 inches big. Well, I mean, oh, okay. honestly, I mean, for me, that's pretty amazing that he watched the TV in black right. and white. Right. Like, well, I, I think I think he may have fallen asleep, but uh, well, it, we, it is sleep inducing. He, you know, he falls yes, asleep at about every movie he watches, though. So well, I, you know. there's plenty I like about Star Trek motion picture, but it is yeah. plotting and very slow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were so many reasons why that happened, uh, because, you know, there was so much interference when they were making it. They swapped directors, yeah. you know, um, it, when they when they did Wrath of Khan, Star Trek became, you know, more exciting. Yes. But, I, you know, I mean, I don't know oh, if you've seen the new no, director's no. cut. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. I just started. Oh, no, we, I just Not watched yet. it. It's, it's, so much, it's so much oh. better because. Yeah. Um, uh, Darren and company added shots that finished telling the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when I watched it the first time, I didn't know where they were when they were voyaging around V'ger. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that was always confusing. I mean, there are scenes in the director's cut that they did that blend in perfectly with the V'ger vessel coming out of the cloud. Mm -hmm. you know? Or shots looking up at it with, you know, the weapons firing out towards mm -hmm. Earth to go into, you know, uh, orbit around uh, the Earth. Those things that were so badly needed for the show to make sense. Mm -hmm. um, I was at the world premiere in Washington, D.C. Uh, for Star Trek, the motion picture, and everyone was there, you know, mm. and um, I overheard someone say that the print was hand delivered by Robert Wise and it was still wet. 
Oh, oh my I've God. Heard, yeah, now, I've heard that. Usually they spend a couple of months just adjusting colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was done in like a matter of days. Wow. You know? Wow. Um, that had to be excruciating for a, a, a top-notch Academy Award-winning director like Mr. Weiss to have that experience. I mean, I know he came in to make that film to help it, but that had to be excruciating to not just be at a. Well, I, you know, I had remembered, I guess it was Jeffrey Katzenberg who was part of Paramount at the time describing it as a runaway stagecoach. Mm. you know, uh, so much, they were second guessing all the creative people on the first movie. Uh, and uh, it, that doesn't help. I mean, right, right. the first director, and I can't remember his name, directed the right stuff. Mm. Uh, he would have done a really interesting Star Trek. I would like to have seen it. Um, Robert Wise, I mean, he wasn't young at the time. Yeah. No, he had, you know? <laughs> yes, he'd done lots of films. Hey, you know what? Uh, take a look at the Hindenburg, the movie The Hindenburg sometime, which is one of his films, and you'll see so many echoes oh, of Star Trek oh, in there. That'd be cool. I no. didn't realize he directed that film. Oh, yeah. I'll be yeah. Stern. Mm-hmm. Oh, another one of Robert Wise's movies that very much reflects Star Trek the motion picture is uh, Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster. Is this the yeah. Arm, 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 uh, Andromeda Strain, or is that a different one? Well, Andromeda Strain is. Oh, Robert it is Wise. Robert. Okay. Yeah. But there was this World War II submarine movie that had Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster. I don't know if it was Run Silent, Run Deep. It or, sure uh, was. Yes, it was Run Silent, Run Deep. That is a fabulous movie. it's an incredible movie but there's so much a star trek the motion picture burt lancaster oh. is the captain of a submarine uh-huh. clark gable comes in and says i'm taking the center seat it's the same mm-hmm. damn thing and they're in competition <laughs> with each other yeah. all through the movie uh, that's interesting hey, the, the, the scenes where where the reliant and the enterprise are going through the the nebula is the same exact shot that's in the movie where the Japanese submarine yeah. is passing over the uh, the American submarine. The, the sonar guy. Exact shot. Exact what is that, shot. sir? I can't make that out. Yeah. What is that, sir? I can't make that out. And the bongo straights and the, you know, and the oh diving. Oh, my God. So was it, bongo so straights. It was like a combination of motion picture and Wrath of Khan then, in the sense that it was like you've got the Decker-Kirk situation, but yeah. you had the more submarine warfare. Oh, listen, if you haven't seen Run Silent, Run Deep, I mean, it's one of the all-time great war movies. I guess we got that on the list. Oh, it really is. Wonderful. And and Burt Lancaster is wonderful. And Clark Gable is wonderful. And Mm -hmm. actually, I think that Don Rickles is one of the... uh... He is. No, he's like the the, the, uh, ship's... uh... I think he's he's like the mechanic or the the yeah, you know mate or something like that. Yeah. Clark Gable, he exists in Star Trek, right, as the actor because that, like Kirk and uh, what's her name, Edith Keeler, don't they go to a Clark? They were going oh, yeah, to a yeah. Clark Gable. Yeah. Or, uh, sorry, like my young the, man's taking me to a yeah. Clark Gable movie. Right. Yeah. A, a what movie? That's funny. Doctor <laughs> McCoy said the same thing. Listen to me, huh? Right? Am I a geek or what? It's fantastic. That's, that's cool. So your your dad's shop in New York. Yeah, get what? back to the. Oh, how, how do you? That was a glorious tangent, though, because I have I forgot Don Rickles was in Run Silent, Run Deep. Yes, so have I'm going to go Kelly watch Zeros? that film. Yeah. No. Yeah. I grew I grew up on all those films. That's that's all I I used to think. John Wayne and Gary Cooper were current actors when I grew up in the eighties, because that's all, that's all I watched growing up was. Well, you know, I mean, I grew up in the sixties, so they were current actors. Right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, 
So we're, so we're back in New York. Oh, oh, that's <laughs> right. And 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 you do have to tell people. And I'm going to year do is 1966. Mister Mister Drexler actually was part of the campaign to that's save right. Star Trek. Wow! And he got written up yes. in a in the local newspaper about yep. his efforts. Yeah, uh, Newsday. Harvey mm-hmm. Aronson. I know Newsday. Newsday's still there. Harvey Aronson uh, had the school junior high school principal call me out of my class. I thought I was in trouble. And I got there and I found out that Harvey Aronson, because I wrote letters to NBC, I wrote letters to the local papers, and Harvey Aronson, who was actually a relative of Isaac Asimov, Hmm. uh, decided to do an article. And I went from being a geeky kid in junior high to the the next day being a celebrity because the article was in the newspaper. Every Mm -hmm. class I went to, the teacher pulled the article out and read it to the class. All of a sudden I was like, you know, I was made, I was gold <laughs> after that. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> I, I mostly got involved because of B. Joe Trimble, who was running Lincoln Enterprises for the Roddenberries uh, and John Trimble. And they had the, um, they had the mailing list from Lincoln Enterprises, which was Majel Barrett's company while the show was still on the air. Mm-hmm. They were selling scripts and slides and wow. all kinds of stuff like that. And so I got a thing from her and about, you know, how to organize your friends to write letters and stuff like that. And so we, we started writing letters to help save the show. And we, and we did, we saved the show. Yeah. I remember it was during the airing of um, uh, Assignment Earth that NBC made an on-air announcement that mm. the show would return, you know, which was like, please stop writing letters. Well, they didn't say that, <laughs> but it, it basically was like that. And I remember photos of NBC and Burbank with picketers outside, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so we saved the show for a third season. Um, uh, I, I, I was at the very first Star Trek convention in, in New York city in 72, maybe. Mm-hmm. They expected, you know, a couple hundred people and several thousand showed up. Then uh, Gene Roddenberry was there. I think it was wow. it wasn't the first was the first time I saw Gene Roddenberry here in person. It may have been. And he ran the projector. They showed the 16 millimeter version of the cage and and the uh, um, the blooper reel, which no one mm-hmm. had ever seen before. Had never been seen before. Um, but, isn't uh, that on the? Isn't that? I think it's on the Blu-ray because I, I watched. I think it is. Yeah, because I remember watching that whole sequence. They showed that, that on the Blu-ray as one of the extras. Yeah. Yeah, Roddenberry mm-hmm. ran the projector. I mean, he used to go around uh, and uh, he had a speaking circuit that he used to do. Mm. I mean, I remember we went to the Nassau Coliseum to see him, and he pretty much filled it. And they showed the cage, and you know, wow. but I'd also seen him in very small venues as well. Mm-hmm. And Gene was always loved the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there was, a, we did end up do, uh, running a Star Trek store, uh, in Manhattan called the Federation Trading Post. Fantastic. Which I guess was 1976. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we did the very first Star Trek magazine ever, which was the Star Trek poster book, which came out in the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, we were helping to keep the show alive. Mm-hmm when it was pretty much forgotten by Paramount yeah. NBC and all that. So I have to ask this. 
you save the show for you get the third season. <laughs> What's your single-handedly? You see... Doug Drexler saved the Star Trek show. That's yeah. true. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. There you go. No, Chris, you've been waiting to ask this question. I've been, you've been talking waiting. about I've been the last two know. weeks or something. Go ahead. Yeah, you watch. Don't give him his moment. <laughs> you know, Star Trek is coming back. You turn it on. It's Spock's brain. What's what? What is your? What's going through your head when you see that? Episode? It was heart wrenching. It was heart wrenching, right. and uh, because I was a sophisticated science fiction fan as a kid, mm. and I'm like, oh my god! And I go into school the next day, and I had a few other friends who were watching it, who totally mocked it, made fun of it, made. I mean, oh, I took geez. it personally. You know, I I couldn't have taken it more personally. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I think the next week was Enterprise Incident. Oh, okay, which good. was much yes. better. Uh, but I have yeah. to tell you what I did with Spock's brain later on is that I took it and I put a laugh track on it. Oh my really? God. It is hilarious with a laugh track on it. I also put a laugh track on Piece of the Action, which is a great episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, really love that episode. Yeah. the gangster episode. Yes. Yeah, it was directed by James Comack, who was a stand up comic. And also did comedy for television, like The Courtship of Eddie's Father. And mm-hmm. I think he also did uh, Barney Miller and stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, so so anyway, putting a laugh track. And I put one of those rowdy laugh audiences, <laughs> which made it even better. You know, it was like a, mm-hmm. it was like a married with children audience. <laughs> really rowdy, you know. Uh, but that, that kind of made it better for me. I, I think mm-hmm. if they had aired it with a laugh track, it would have been better. Yeah. <laughs> well, so now how, having been involved in the letter writing, getting it on the air, then yes, uh, knowing that you saved it for another season. And then when you learned that, that was really going to be the last season, how was that? Like, I feel well, like that's I like mean, a big high and then a crash. And then, well, I mean, it, it was, it was six months before that happened, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there were, there were moments where it was like, what's happening to the show. I mean, there are episodes that people mock in all the seasons, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, um, for instance, an episode that I actually like that most people mock constantly is uh, Omega Glory, you know, where they bring the flag out and Kirk does his. Oh, no, yeah. yeah. But I love that episode. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy know, it. Yeah, it's good. I really enjoy mm-hmm. it. And I love mm-hmm. seeing Shatner chewing up the scenery. He's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These three words larger than all the rest. I know, right? I know. Oh, yeah. And, with, and the, the yeah, with, and the national anthem in the background, awesome. the whole thing. You with the trumpet, yeah. <laughs> I can't not hear him when I see "We the People." I can't. I always yeah, hear that speech in my head. I mean, there are episodes that don't age well, uh, and that's to be expected. I mean, look how many of those shows, how many shows from the sixties? No one remembers any of them. Mm-hmm. And you know, like I posted a thing on my Facebook page about NBC. 1966 uh, fall preview with all the artwork for all the new shows. And we're talking shows that were huge at the time. Bonanza was huge. Mm-hmm. I spy the man from mm-hmm. uncle. I mean, mm-hmm. right, man those shows uncle, yeah. were huge and star Trek was like, you know, and also ran that people made fun of and no one watched. And the one show out of all those shows from back then that people remember now and is still going is star mm-hmm. Trek, mm-hmm. you know, but the, it was a time period where science fiction was looked at as being, you know, kitty stuff. Yeah. Uh, unless you read science fiction, you thought mm-hmm. it was for, you know, brain damage. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I was a member of the science fiction book club in middle school. Oh, yes, I'm here. And, and we loved getting books. I mean, I still have the very first book I bought, which was called When Harley Was One, about a, 
the first year of a computer mind that's been alive, I still have that book because it's great. You Wait know? a second. So, that was written by, um, that wasn't Ellison, was it? I don't know. I, I'd have to go find it. It's put away someplace. No. I mean, yeah. I was a big Harlan Ellison fan. You know, the, mm. the beauty of Star Trek season one, especially, mm-hmm. and even some of season two, is that Gene used actual science fiction writers, right. not mm-hmm. television writers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he regretted that. Um, yes, they brought interesting ideas to the table, but people like that are not used to having their work edited or rewritten. Yeah. And television is all about being rewritten. You've you yes. got a writing staff and they're going to rewrite it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Harlan Ellison wrote the original City on Edge of Forever. I love Harlan Ellison and I'm a big fan, but I thought that the air, the aired version of City was superior to the, you know, the mm-hmm. original story. Mm-hmm. Um, Harlan had like Scotty selling drugs on the Enterprise. <laughs> well, you know, That's not going to work. You know, and it's like Harlan, Harlan, he was at war with Gene Roddenberry for years, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But that's the way he is. His natural environment is boiling water, mm. you know. Yeah. So when and you who, say, I'm sorry, go so, ahead. So when you say that you think um, Roddenberry regretted it, is because regretting damaging his relationship with these the science fiction authors that well, that that's certainly a part of it. But I think that it's hard enough as it is writing a television show mm-hmm. or producing a TV show where you have a guy like Harlan Ellison who is going to be fighting with you about everything, mm-hmm. not get his stuff in on time, sleeping mm-hmm. on the floor. You know, I mean, uh, you're just asking for trouble. It's a different mm-hmm. kind of writer. Yeah. Yeah. He's never going to do what you want, mm-hmm. you know, and a te- television writer, it's a collaborative effort. Television. Mm-hmm. If you're a novelist, yeah. you're the only one. You're making all the decisions, and all you, you can understand that, Adina. Yeah, I understand that. Although I, I don't, I well, and again, maybe it's my own approach. But I mean, I have beta readers, and I take their feedback very seriously. I have an editor, and she's been amazing, and I take her feedback very seriously. So even though it's sort of like it, it is my way or the highway. I don't think of it. You know, I, I take feedback very, very seriously, and I, I use it. It makes my writing better. You know, so, but I own yeah. it. <laughs> well, you know, but I mean, the thing is that. If you're a diva like Harlan is, mm-hmm. he's not going to think anybody knows better than him. Okay, well, fair. Doug, I, I'm not Doug, like, I'm he, not a Harlan Ellis. Yeah. Oh. No. <laughs> Doug, Doug, wasn't Harlan at the 2015 Star Trek convention? Because I went there knowing that he was going to be one of the, you know, one of the uh, signers. Hmm. But I didn't want to talk to him about Star Trek. I wanted him to sign my... Outer Limits compilation book that I have. <laughs> because to me, his two scripts, Demon with the Glass Hand and Soldier, yeah, that's like really great stuff. Have you ever been to the Bradbury building in Los Angeles where they shot that? Oh, many times, my friend. Many Gorgeous. times. It mm. is. It's the coolest building from the inside. And then they do cool. almost the same scene in Blade Runner. Yep, exactly. In the same and building. You know? yeah, absolutely. Which, which building in Blade Runner? I'm just Bradbury. trying to think. Uh... The At the end of the movie, when he goes to uh, seek out the creator and uh, the little toys are, you know, these are my these are my friends and they're inside yeah, a right. building. I made them. Hmm. You made the little you made those really the toys. No, that's his line. These are my friends. <laughs> I made them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Can I ask you a question, Doug, that that um, Steve actually wrote down? Because I think it's 
It's a great question. You've done so much work on Trek through the years, Next Gen, D Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, all uh, all the Next Gen films. Is is uh, I think I read and, and Picard and Picard. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. So, so that's cool. right. I was so going to talk about that is, shortly on the NXO one refit, but we'll get to that later. Okay. Yeah, we have to talk what about is things. what's your most proud contribution as an artist and as a and it's okay if there's a few. You know, if you've got it's some, really hard. You know, because I was so so in love with all of it you know mm. i mean uh when i came on to next generation you know that was gene roddenberry and bob justman you know i mean mm -hmm. just to be a part of that to be on stage and look over and see gene roddenberry standing there i mean can you imagine crazy you know so was um, that your first first work into in star so you were a fan of star trek all through the years and yeah. then was next generation your first work my first in professional trek? my first professional involvement mm -hmm. with the show uh, you know, when we were doing Dick Tracy, Star Trek Next Generation was in its second season. Okay. So when uh, Tracy ended, I went right over to Paramount and I pretty much begged Mike Westmore <laughs> to let me make makeup on the show. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, I don't understand. You're doing movies and stuff. Why would you? And I'm like, Mike. <laughs> Star Trek. Me, Star Trek. Do I need another reason? This is it. You know, and oh. so I, he brought me in and I. You see, I had a fantastic time on Next Generation because I had come off the biggest show in Hollywood. And mm. so I was a minor celebrity when I arrived on stage. Mm. You know, this is the guy who did the makeups, you know, my partner and I on Dick Tracy. Uh, and so I could go on stage and act like a geek. I could froth at the mouth over Patrick Stewart or, you know, any of them and not be worried about, you know, the thing was that, and when I started working with Mike, he said, it's not a good idea to be the geek on the show mm -hmm. because they've had so many set break-ins and they've oh, had so much stuff right, stolen yes. off the set that anybody who was too big of a geek would, they'd be <laughs> suspicious of, you know, and I don't blame them. I mean, right, over a weekend, right. $10,000 worth yeah. of uniforms would be missing. Oh, exactly. goodness. Really? Yeah. People broke into the stages, you know, yeah, there was a video about that. I something. know. I know that guy. Too. Yeah. Yeah. What a knucklehead. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to watch now, but I mean, he was in a uniform, you know, and it was absurd. I know both guys who were there that day uh, and you could hear them being chased by security when they ran. So Doug, you say you worked on next generation, you worked on DS nine, you worked on Voyager, right? You're doing all these work. And is that, you, did you meet Mike and Denise when you were doing, working on TNG? Is that how you met them? Well, I knew who Mike was. Mm -hmm. I had seen him like on Entertainment Tonight or something. The first time I ever saw Mike was an interview about Next Generation before it aired. And mm -hmm. it, it was Herman Zimmerman and Michael Kuda. Oh. And um, when I was on the show, oh, I came out early even before it aired i had made friends with bob justman oh yeah and he invited me out and there weren't even any sets yet when i first went out there and i remembered him saying you know i was doing makeup and he said well he goes the thing is that there's an east coast makeup union and a west coast makeup union and they kind of butt heads a little bit uh and he said but you know there's more than one way to skin a cat our graphic designers coming from hawaii and it was like oh my that's michael kuda Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what a lucky guy, you know. Um, so I was on stage when I finally worked, wormed my way in. Well, you know, before that, I, I, with Jeffrey Mandel, we flew out from New York to sneak on the back lot while they were making Star Trek the motion picture. 
So that was the first time I'd ever been even close to the production. We snuck okay. on a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I was on stage and I saw Mike Okuda at the craft service table when I went over and started a conversation with him. Mm-hmm. And I think I embarrassed him because I was, I was so impressed by the interfaces on the ship. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, think about the L-Cars graphics. Oh, and that. that almost any science fiction fan, and maybe not even science fiction fans, if I ask you to draw the footprint of the T-bars and the L-Car graphics, you probably could do it. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I defy you to find me another interface on television or in the movies where you can do that. You can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're almost all interchangeable, you know? <laughs> I mean, I could take graphics I've seen on some show and put it on Hawaii Five O, and you won't even be able to tell the difference. You can't do that with L cars. Mm. It says Star Trek. And that's why mm-hmm. if I visit JPL out in Pasadena, everyone's got L cars on their, you know, their screen backgrounds. No mm-hmm. one has screen <laughs> you know. Um, if, o- if only Mike got a dime for every one of those, right? He'd be uh Yeah, well, you know, I gotta hand it to on Picard. We have the new production designer on season two and three is one of us. Mm-hmm. He can sit in on this conversation that we're having right now and hold his own with anyone. He knows everything about Star Trek. Mm. And when I first met him, he showed me a picture of himself in a uh, you know movie-era uniform as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I know the show's in good hands. And then the new line producer starting in season two was Terry Metalis, who was a production assistant on Enterprise. And oh, now wow. he's a showrunner. And he used to hang out with us in the art department, and he loves Star Trek too. That's why Picard season two is different. Yes, it feels... Uh, it, it feels, feels totally so different, right? I'm loving like how Trek it is, the L cars, all of it. Oh, the bridge. The bridge, the bridge is yes. beautiful. And you know, and you've got L cars. You see, the thing was that when I first went and saw the first JJ movie and I saw the bridge, I looked at the interfaces and I'm like, it's spaghetti. I mm. can't figure out anything. None of it says mm-hmm. anything to me. But when you look at interfaces by Okuda, you know, whether it was on Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, or whatever, and you can look at a station. Any one of you people could go yeah. on the bridge and know what every station does, what it is, just from a glance, because that's the kind of... A- and go ahead. I was going to say, that's actually really you know, one of the reasons why you go to JPL and you go to these places and you will see, you know, we, we, the reason we, we love it. And I say we, even though I don't work at JPL, I do work in the aerospace industry. And some of my, a lot of my career has been related to software and control software that we use to control the satellites and uh, stuff for astronauts. Uh, there is a, a lot of, re- I see a lot of realism in it mm. because that whole idea of you need to know it, it is important for, from a human machine interface to be able to glance and know what you're looking at without having to think about it. I mean, there's a lot of, re- I see a lot of realism in L cars. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love it. And I think my fellow well, engineers do too. It's just that Mike and like Rick Sternbach and, you know, myself have a genuine interest mm-hmm. in space program and stuff like that. Uh, Mike and Rick, especially, mm-hmm. are like junior scientists, you know. Mike's done lots of different things for, for NASA. He's done a lot of patches. And- oh, yeah. Designs and things, and you see it at JPL, and you say it up on the wall. All yeah. these graphics. So, if you go on the Stargazer Bridge from Picard, and I've been there, mm-hmm. you'll look around and you'll go, "There's the intermix. There's, you know, it's all what you're expecting." Mm-hmm. Star Trek fans love to feel like they're in the know, like they could go on that bridge and fly that ship. Mm-hmm. 
And the same was true of the exteriors of a lot of the ships in the new shows. All of a sudden, you look at the ship and you couldn't find a reaction control quad. You couldn't find a phaser strip. You couldn't find an airlock. You couldn't find any, you couldn't find a transporter emitter. All the stuff you know is on a starship. And so we went for years where the plating patterns made no sense. And so when we did, Dave Blass, the production designer, wanted to get the band back together. And he brought me in and he brought in Mike. And every Starfleet ship in season two and three was passed by me to make sure that everything was there that fans expected. And so when you see the Stargazer for the first time, the fans went ape at mm -hmm. the Stargazer because yeah. the first time since like, I don't know when the first JJ movie came out. It was the first time since then that they looked at a ship and all the secret stuff that they knew about was there again. Mm -hmm. The plating patterns look like they made sense. All the details and start just like the bridge. You want to go on the bridge and go to science one or whatever, or science two and know what you're looking at. And so they lost that in almost all of the shows since mm -hmm. enterprise ended. Um, and I know a lot of fans yes. were hurt by that. You know, it hurt me. I, I can't stand yeah. to look at that where it's just, it becomes science fiction, cotton candy. It's not yes. it's just fluff. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, I'm sorry to say, Doug, but that's what, it, that's my biggest problem with, with discovery. It's so out of there on its graphics and everything is just wrong. But, and that's what I love. And I got to go back and say why that's why I love the NX01 because it, i I said that to you at, in, when we spoke at the convention once I said, the thing about the NX01 is it looks real. It looks like it was built by a company. Uh, 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 somebody that that Adina, uh, uh, yeah, Adina might work for. It looks real, and that's what you want to see. You want to see realism. It you was one of the most. It works. It was one of the most thought out ships ever. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that goes for the interior and the exterior. Yeah. It was whatever, you know. Herman Zimmerman wanted us to be happy with it. He knew that we lived it. We eat and slept and drank that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the exterior, I mean, it's like the first ship where you could go right up to an airlock and it's all figured out, everything, yeah. right down to the last detail. Uh, and a lot of the ships now, you know, there's, there's Starfleet starships that are very thought out mm -hmm. and they're beautiful. And then there's Star Wars spaceships that are very beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Thought out part, it's not as important. Mm -hmm. in star wars it just has to look cool mm -hmm. yes yeah. on yeah. star trek yeah. it has to look grounded and that people who are fans want to look at it and be in the know of what they're looking at they know yeah. what a you know an rcs thruster is they want to mm -hmm. see that if you don't have it you're lying well and i think i mean nx01 given that it's the closest in time to us it's got to be the most possibly realistic that you could imagine that this is true evolution of you know where we are today for you know another 100 150 years from now where in discovery well discovery is weird because it exists in two completely different time periods the 900 years in the future i can completely accept anything crazy because it's yeah. 900 years into the future you know mm -hmm. but it's the, the closer time periods that you i think we need we the need the only that. problem with 900 years in the future is that there's probably no one on the show who can really come up with something that is believable for 900 years in the future. It probably right. only looks 300 years, you know? 
Sure, that, that sure. Part of my problem with what's happened with Star Trek is that since Gene died, Gene is the only one who could say, I'm Gene Roddenberry and I know what Star Trek is. And, and he could say, I want a bridge that's dramatically different, but still makes mm-hmm. you think of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of lashed the wheel at the point mm-hmm. where Gene died. And you could go a thousand years in the future and it's not that much different. Yeah. You know? yeah. They tell you it's different, but it isn't, you know? Well, thank you for listening to our conversation with Academy Award winner and two-time Emmy winner, Doug Drexler. Also a huge part of the Trek franchise over the years. You can really hear his passion and his knowledge. We're excited to bring part two of our conversation next time on the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Until then, keep trucking, my friends.